Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This one with Brian Silva, we did a little differently. Started having a conversation and it just worked. So don't have that normal intro that we had uh, at most of our podcasts. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please uh, subscribe to us, rate us in the iTunes app store. It really helps us out. Um, gets uh more eyeballs on the on the podcast and if you haven't please subscribe to the friday newsletter it's sent every monday wednesday and friday it's the easiest way to stay up to date with golf and um, everything that's going on so thanks again and without further ado here is brian silva i miss a green for example i'm already upset when i find my ball in the bunker i'm really upset and when i find my ball in a fried egg Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. been out at the western am this week which is Mm -hmm. at uh skokie country club yes i mean unbelievable set of greens and you know they have this one that has this massive false front they have a couple with them that but you know this uh this guy is is complaining i was with my buddy in a practice round and this guy's complaining he's like i don't understand why this is all green here it's not like they can put a pin there and i'm like well that's why your ball will roll 20 yards down the hill. You know, it, it, it makes the hole green, you know. It's hard for people to appreciate that the green, under the best circumstances, is part of the hazard on a hole. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it's better that you hear things like that than I do because I don't hide my visual reaction when some knucklehead says something like that. Yeah, You know, all they're trying to do is make every golf course in America like every other golf course in America and kind of homogenize, vanillaize it down to the least interesting, most standard, least unexciting thing. It's unbelievable. It's such an incredible double standard. You know, a course has a really unique, beautiful clubhouse those people would never, who want to just dummy down their golf course and make it look like every other golf course would never say, you know, our clubhouse, it's really too unique. Yeah. We, we really need to tear it down and, like, put up a metal butler building. Oh, and then they'll say, a metal a butler building that's easier to maintain because everything that gets done, I say to people, sadly... When we do a project, there's maybe 10 items of interest that, we're, that, are, that everyone's talking about, keeping in mind throughout the entire project, and, um, you know, bullet points or whatever you want to call them. One is the most important. It's the one that gets talked about the most, and 10 is the least important, the one that gets talked about at the least. I swear, more often than not, characteristics of golf course design find themselves large, largely lodged in number 10. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 
geez, how do we get the card pass around? And, and you know, I, I, hit a perfect, I hit a perfect shot to this green. But because of this false front that shouldn't even be green, I ended up 20 yards back in the fairway. That's not fair. <laughs> so it, it's fascinating. And all it proves, Andy, and don't take this personally, is guys like you and me haven't done a good enough job educating yeah, I. People. No, I agree. You know what I mean? It, we, it's just, and unfortunately, we're swimming against the tide, because more often than not, when a new course gets well, they don't get built anymore. But when work gets done, it really, you, you would think their goal was to take the character out of the course to, um, you know. Uh, take the unique features out of the course it's uh, it's unfortunate now don't get me wrong i think there's there's the swell work going on out there but there there still is this um uh inertia to make every golf course look like it was built in the 1960s and um that's unfortunate yeah i i mean it's the it's really interesting i mean i watched uh this kid cameron champ yesterday play and he's like one of the longest guys on, uh, you know, he'd be the longest guy on tour. He's a college kid. He kills it. And he played this 400-yard hole. The pin was way up front on the right side. And he hit driver up to like 30 yards. And he was absolutely dead because, mm-hmm. he, he, you know, the way the green was. And, and this is a green mm-hmm. that would never be built by today. Right, right. And yep. the way the green was, he had a knob in front of this front pin and a knob behind it and he had nothing he couldn't do anything and it's like mm-hmm. okay like that was a really bad play like you need to have a full shot going into that green and right right and like yes and people are you know how do you defend distance how do you, but like great green complexes defend well because then you have to play angles and you have to have a strategy going into the hole rather than just you know pull out driver and bludgeon the course and that's what i Boy, think those that, are those are outlandish thoughts andy that you'd actually think on the tee where you want to be to best access the green. You're you're going in the wrong direction, big guy. You know, it's all power golf. <laughs> it's, I, it's very sad. I, I sense I, a hint of sarcasm. I, yeah. I mean, I see why a lot of people are like that. And um, uh, because if you put a if you put a percentage on the number of courses in the United States that don't require that thought, that don't have the angles, that don't have the strategy, that don't have multiple routes, I'm, I'm afraid that percentage would be above 90%. And so they're not used, they've never seen it before. And, and when they see it, they find it odd because they don't see it. You know, I, I can't do a project without trying to force a stupid punch bowl green in on it. Mm-hmm. And and people say, well, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I say, well, it, it's a punch bowl green. Have you ever been to Scotland? It, every course kind of has one. And there were these two knuckleheads named McDonald and Rayner who used to do them. And these are the names of the courses. You know, they've done them on. Oh, I've heard of those courses. So it's it's interesting craft. Mm-hmm. It's um. How how did you get into golf course architecture? Um, 
my dad was in um, uh, light construction. Uh, well, he he started out working for a big company, uh, J.F. White, that uh, built part of Logan Airport. He ran a bulldozer. He did the Mass Pike extension into Boston. But then in the early 60s, um, and Andy, no answers are short with me, so just tell me to shut up. Oh, no, when, no, when Keith. He, uh, well, you've heard it, enough. The, the beauty of this format is you can just talk, and we and, and it's great. It's just a conversation. So, But my, my dad um, had a little bit of a reputation as a bulldozer operator, and I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts. And oddly enough, there was a guy in Framingham, Massachusetts, who built, who was in a construction company that built golf courses and uh, playing fields. So he, he needed a guy to shape greens and tees and bunkers in the early 60s and he said to my dad hey why don't you come try working with us for a week and we can see how it goes and after a week bob drake said to my father i you are the only guy who's going to do stuff for me by that time my dad and uh, another guy from framingham had started a small construction company just two guys they had a couple bulldozers a couple backhoes and uh uh, for the spring, summer, and fall for the next uh, oh, 18 or 20 years, that's what my dad did. He, he worked. He did shaping for this guy named Bob Drake. Uh, some new courses, but mostly renovation to existing courses, and that's what I wanted to do. But you know, my dad, he he worked on the machine six days a week, and then on Sunday he was his own mechanic. He'd do repairs and maintenance. And he didn't want me doing that. So um, ever since I found out I wouldn't make it in the National Hockey League, Mm -hmm. which I found out when I was 13 and I went to a summer hockey school with kids all from all over Canada and the United States, and it took me about 10 minutes to realize I'd never make it in the NHL, um, I I decided I wanted to be a golf course architect. And my, my dad worked on a lot of Jeffrey Cornish projects, who Jeff did a lot of work in New England. And uh, when I was in high school, I met Mr. Cornish and said, what should a kid do who wants to be a golf course architect? And and Jeff said, well, you should go to turf school for two years, and then you should get your bachelor's in landscape architecture, and you should work on golf courses during the summer. And that was in those heady days when I actually listened to what people told me. So that's what I did. And um, when I was at – then I went to graduate school in uh, plant and soil sciences, and when I was there, I taught. A professor left right at the last minute before fall semester started, so I taught a couple uh, courses each semester in turf. I liked that a lot. I went down to Lake City Community College, where they used to have a two-year program that trained superintendents. I taught there for three years, and I wanted to get back to New England. I worked for the USGA Green section, you know, the agronomist staff, Mm -hmm. visiting golf courses, and then one day, Mr. Cornish and I just happened to be visiting the same golf course on the same day. We were walking it, and all the committee people were in carts, and when they went to get the carts and we were walking down a hole, Jeff turned to me and said, you know, I think it's time you got involved in golf course design. Um, Why don't you come work with me, and then I'll retire after a few years, and uh, and you can just run with the ball, and, you know, like some wet behind the ears kind of guy. And I said, well, Jeff, let, Jeff, let me think about it for a week. I mean, the minute he said it, I knew what was happening. So a week you, later, I you called. Played, you played it cool, though, and you were like, oh, let me think about my options. 
No, the only the only thing that was obvious is I immediately wet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I called him back and said I want to do that, and he said, "Okay, this is how we're going to do it. I want you to work for the United States Golf Association for five more years. You've only worked there for two years." And I just said, "Jeff, I cannot do. I cannot know that this is going to happen." Sort of my dream. I said. You're a wicked, awesome, nice gentleman. I said, could could let let me just finish this season, and uh, next winter I'll I'll come on with you. And so, in February of '83, I went on with Jeff, and so that's kind of the way I got uh, my start. You know, if you're not Jack Nicholas or or um, or someone like that, it's still very much like the European system of a of an apprentice. Uh, occupation, Andy, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Brian Silvers of the world don't just put a shingle out and say, "Hi, I'm a golf course architect," and then get jobs. They and it's appropriate that they should learn and train under somebody who's um, really well experienced. So I was lucky, you know, when when things were moving and grooving in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. I would say that Jeff and I got uh, oh, at least 100 resumes a year from kids in turf school, from uh, kids from landscape architecture school, from 50-year-old guys who wanted to get out of the financial business, who wanted to become golf architects and wanted to know how to do that. And out of all those people, not many get a chance. And I was just unbelievably fortunate uh, to get a chance because... In all honesty, I still get things where they send me, uh, you know, full-size plans of these imaginary golf courses, and they do grading plans, and I just say to myself, wow, my stuff isn't half as good as this. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they're trying to get in, so I was just real lucky. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's uh, opportunity and, you know, hard work intersecting. You got kind of the... Good start there. I mean, it, it it's interesting. I, I look at the landscape of the architecture world, and especially with, you know, the economic slowdown, now you have this uh, marketplace where there aren't enough jobs for how many talented, like, associates um, that work for guys like Core and Crenshaw and Doak. And, you know, if you look back to the 80s and 90s, those guys would be, you know, have their own architecture firms now. Do you, do you think I we had a couple young guys who worked for us in the office, and one of them named Brian Johnson. His father was a golf pro, so Brian's been doodling golf holes since he was about six. He had to get out of it because uh, there was no work. He's got a management company now uh, in Houston, Texas, and he manages a golf course for a guy. I'm going to tell you something. If he ever got a chance, he would blow everyone in the industry away uh he does my drafting now so i still get his he's unbelievably talented and imaginative i still get the benefit of his imagination but it's really sad that a kid like brian who wants it as much as anyone i've ever known and who is more talented than anyone i've ever known uh the multiple routes he thinks about it oh jeez. And the strategy and the angles is uh, 
just incredible. It, it's too bad. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. It's, uh... And it's no fault. It's through no fault of theirs. You know, this is the truth. I, I got to do some work, uh, 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 not insignificantly, just by lucky timing. Yeah. That, you know, nobody likes to say stuff like that, but that's the truth. You know, being born when I was and getting into the work when I was, uh, there were ups and downs, you know, but nothing like it is now in terms of new courses. I really lived through a 25-year boom, and that's why, you know, when I see guys now and they bemoan how quiet it is, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but there are times when I'll say, well, well, don't you think when we were all building 300 brand new courses a year, that that was maybe as ridiculous on one side of the equation yeah. as just building five new courses a year? But, but you know what happens, Andy? You know, when you're in the heat of the battle and that many courses are getting built and it goes on for a couple decades or more, it's easy to think, well, this is the way it is. Yep. And, you know, it, 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 in, in one way it was the way it is, in another way it definitely was not the way it is. And so if you, if you live through that and you're complaining now, I, I'm, I just don't know that you're taking a very realistic viewpoint. But, but like Brian Johnson, I feel bad for these talented guys and gals who just can't uh, get their chance. It's, it, it, it further uh, proves to me how fortunate a knucklehead like myself, how, I, how, how fortunate I was. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's like that old, uh, I think it was the player saying, you know, the more you work, the luckier you get. And it sounds like you put in a lot of hard work. So. Oh, no, no, no. I did, but, but you know what, Andy, and, and I did, I worked, I, I, I believe I worked as hard as anyone. When I used to go to the Architect Society meetings and I'd talk, you know, after dinner with guys, where, what are you doing? And this is, they, they would just, the volume of work, would would stun them a little bit, but you still can't. And my wife says the same thing. Oh, honey, you worked really hard. You you left on Monday and you didn't come back till Saturday. All while Amanda was growing up, you you worked hard. And I said, yeah, but you cannot get away from the fact that I had the chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, you know, it's a small profession. A lot of people never had a chance. So um, I I realize how fortunate I was. So, I think when it's busy, you can sometimes forget that. You, you can forget how, hey, I got it going on. But again, I think seeing Brian Johnson, such a great, he's a great kid, really good player. And uh, I, I had him up and we played golf for a few days in May. And uh, I got up one morning and on my desk was a, a, a couple of eight and a half by 11 sheets of papers of golf holes he designed over the night while he couldn't sleep and when I, and I got up I saw him and he was already up and he says Bri I really want to I really want to get back in this and I said I know you do Bri but but I said you know you have a really good job right now it's probably paying you more than you could do if you could just scratch out a job in somebody's office and I, I 
I know, he, you know, he wants me to get busy enough to have to need full-time help, and I'm not sure that will ever happen again. Yeah. So the, the, being home during the recession, uh, you know, being home more than two nights a week was a real eye-opening experience for me. I, I enjoyed it more than I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, you've started, you've done a lot of restorations, too. <clears throat> And I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the golden age architects that you've encountered um, and kind of learn from and, and who you consider your biggest influences and, and why. Well, um, I, I, um, I, I got to go modern first, uh, Andy, mm-hmm. uh, because um, early on in my life, um, when I was teaching at Lake City, and see, um, during the summer, uh, when there were no classes, my job was to drive around the southeast and uh, visit courses um, where my students were working on their summer on-the-job training thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to, see, you know, Harbor Town, and well, and and and, and even. Seminole, which Pete didn't design, but he was a member of, mm-hmm. um, I, st- I started to think that his courses were a little bit different than other people's courses. And, and it wasn't just, it, it, was deci- it was decidedly not the railroad ties or, or pot bunkers or strip bunkers. There was something going on there, and, and that kind of planted a little thing in my mind. I, I wish I had been bright enough to fully understand it. And then when I became a USJ agronomist up in the Northeast, I, I saw lots of golf courses, but I started to really like these McDonald and Rainer golf courses. Mm-hmm. There was something going on there. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I knew they were different. And they were fun to play, but they were still challenging. But I still was so stupid, I couldn't really um, uh, boil it down to its, its fundamentals. And I'm going to tell you a story I never tell in public. But we used to close the office the first week in December back when we had an office, and we'd go out to La Quinta, California. I had friends who worked for Landmark, and and we would play like Ryder Cup matches against them for a week. There'd be four of us against four of them, and we would play La Quinta Mountain, La Quinta Citrus, we'd play PGA West, we'd play the old Dinosaur, we'd play the new Dinosaur. So it was a Pete Dye extravaganza. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I felt there was something about his courses, and this is the truth, and I'm a little embarrassed about this. One night after dinner, I walked over to La Quinta Hotel, and this was in December, about two weeks after they'd had the Skins game at PGA West. Yeah. And I sat next to the fireplace, and in a little wicker basket next to the fireplace, there were the program books that mm-hmm. they sold during the Skins game. Yeah. And I, are you taping me, Andy? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. 
then I won't use um, great expletives. <laughs> um, in, in this wicker basket uh, was a program, and I opened it up, and the center fold, you know, only a guy interested in design can go nuts about a centerfold, uh-huh. which is an aerial photograph of PGA West, you know, and when you look down on it from the sky, immediately I said, oh, holy crap, it's all about angles. Mm-hmm. I could see the angles that Pete had put in, how a green might point down uh, point at the hook side of the fairway and how there was one of his bite-off strip bunkers that went down the right side. And the more you bit off, the more you aligned with the green. And I, and I said, honest to God, I said, oh, you stupid SOB. You were on the edge of this, but it didn't, the different little points didn't all go together to to make you realize it. And And that day, what, what I thought about golf course design completely changed. So it was really um, Pete's angles uh, hit me. I I didn't fully uh, form it in my mind or verbalize it. And then Rainer McDonald, I saw more of that. And then when I saw this picture, it completely changed um, the way I thought. I knew my corridors for play had to be much wider. I knew we had to cut down trees to give people uh, the the width that uh, allows alternate routes. Mm-hmm. It was really, um, it was a um, interesting uh, for me, awakening. For, if you said to me, Brian, what would you do different in, in your life? I would say to you, well, I would have gone to see all the golf courses I did when I was working at the college, when I was growing up going to my dad's jobs when I was a USG green section agronomist, but I would have gone and visited even more, and I would have stopped looking at the turf. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would have looked at what I call the skeleton, the, the tops of the tees, the top of the fairway, and the top of the green, and I would look at what angles are presented by that because... I think that that is 99.9% of what allows a golf course to be strategic, but also what allows a golf course to be played by the average and less than average player, but what allows a golf course to still be mentally stimulating for an excellent player. Um, to me, it's, it's all it's angles and almost nothing else. And so this age of the Internet, um, Google Earth is my favorite site because when I get called, hey, uh, this is so-and-so from such-and-such country club, I'm on Google Earth doing my homework um, before I get out there. And and the funny thing is, you know, they'll they'll say to me when I'm walking, of course, so what do you think of the conditions? And I say, look, I'll tell you what I think of the conditions because I kind of, you know, I have a turf degree. I have a master's training in plant and soil sciences. I was a USGA agronomist, but I said, I'm really not here to tell you about your turf. I'm interested, and if, if you'll forgive me, I think you should be interested in the design character of your golf course. Does it present angles? Does it present alternate routes of play? And so on and so forth. So those are my, those are my influences um, in a long answer, Andy. 
so I, I'm curious. I'm all about angles and strategy, and and I don't think it's really possible to have those without width. Do you agree with that? No, I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And um, being that I'm an old codger, I'm I'm going to tell you secrets I don't normally tell. I used to um, I used to um, teach a two day seminar first with Bob Lohman and then Jan Beljan for the Golf Course Superintendents Association, mm-hmm. and it was on golf course renovation, restoration, and construction. And one day during the seminar, a kid said to me, um, how wide do you clear your corridors when you're building a new course through the woods? And I, you know, I, I was honest. I said between 180 and 200 feet. And at lunch, Jan said to me, did you misunderstand that question? <laughs> and I said, no. And she said, well, Brian, how do you do all the things you want to do on a golf hole in such a narrow corridor? This was before the light bulb went on with the aerial photograph of PGA West. Mm -hmm. Of all places, you know what I mean? You know, most people would think of PGA West and some of the pot bunkers and railroad ties and think it's not a, a sound course. But you see, that's the trouble today. They're looking at the superficial aspects yeah. of a golf course. They're not looking at the skeleton. Don't tell me about the skin, which is the turf, and don't don't tell me that much about the muscles and tendons, which are some of the railroad ties. What angles does it present? So, so Jan said that, and that kind of had an effect on me. And then there used to be a a a, a, a trade magazine. Jeez, I can't remember the name of it now that we're talking about it, but a law had been passed in Hawaii that said you could only clear corridors for golf holes like, I can't remember the number, 220 or whatever feet wide. And there was a comment from Nicholas that says, well, I don't see how we can build golf courses anymore. And his, gosh, I credit Jack with something that's very out of character. But um, Jan, because I really admired Jan, she was really a good friend of mine. And then I saw this aerial photograph, and I said, I can't do what I want to do. It's like the tire commercial, wider is better. Mm. I I can't do. And that's what people used to say with the courses of mine from uh, a little bit later time in my career. A guy would play at friends of mine, they'd say, gee, you could fit three of your original golf holes in this golf hole. And I said, oh, I, I wasn't doing it right. Mm-hmm. It's got to be wider to allow the um, strategy and the different angles. And, and you know, I, I used to do lateral fairway bunkers like everybody in the 60s and, yeah. and a lot of people still today. Now I, I turn most of my fairway bunkers perpendicular shot so they bite into the fairway. Now I like the fairway to swing out to the side the opposite side, so it's still the same width, pretty much going all the way down. But, you know, I'm, it's like I remember I saw Shinnecock when I worked for the USGA, and there was something going on there. I wasn't sure what it was. And when I read articles about Shinnecock, it was, well, Shinnecock's a great course because the fescue's blowing in the breeze and blah, blah, yeah. blah. That isn't it. It was because of its sinewy fairways that moved to the right and then back to the left. It set up... On the same golf hole, it set up fade drive zones. It set up straight drive zones. It set up hook drive zones. 
and when you it's the same as the s turns that Pete puts into his fairways so um it it all, those things all uh, other people are able to coalesce these inputs quicker than I did mm-hmm. but once I did, I knew it was wider, and that I really wanted to try to get some of those turns into the fairways because they so impacted strategy. Well, I, I also imagine uh, starting your career during that time, it, it was common practice for, for penal and, and tight, you know, hard golf was great golf, and it people wanted to go out and, and, and struggle on the golf course. And that's what the, you know, the developers wanted were, were hard golf courses as opposed to fun, playable and, uh, courses that really infuse thought. Yeah. You're kind and the honest God to suggest that. Um, I just think there's a million reasons for someone to say, why they weren't um, designing more strategic and thought-provoking golf courses. And I think the only good one is they hadn't evolved to that point in their thinking or they just didn't think that way. I, I think that, um, you know, there was thought, but Pete was still, Pete was building hard golf courses with tremendously sinewy fairways that were very strategic, that that I could go to and play the 6,300-yard marker and play to my handicap while the pros from the back markers were having trouble. So um, I, if, if you'll forgive me for saying, um, and, 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 and I'm, I am a piece of evidence, number one, that um, it's just, it's a little bit of a helpful excuse um you know i i think that um i think that people could have sold their developer on look we're going to make a great golf course here um here's the eighth hole from shinnecock that everyone raves about here's the 16th hole at shinnecock that everyone raves about and i've i've taken out the hay down the sides so you're not distracted by that the reason this is a great hole well, the reasons this is a great hole is the, the green points in a particular direction. The fairway has lots of movement. If you want to uh, set up a shot, a drive, so your approach shot works with the angle of the green, you either need to drop it short of that hook bunker, put it as close to the right of the hook bunker as you can, or hit a draw around that hook bunker. And that sets up the angle, and that's what makes it a great golf course, and that's what I want to do on your golf course so you need to give me a little more width in the corridors between the houses going down both sides, <laughs> and, and and we could achieve that kind of thing. So um, I think uh, I think even today, you know, there are uh, visible people out there who are putting these characteristics into their uh, golf courses. But I um, I think they could have put them in even in courses in the 80s and 90s. They, they could have convinced their owners that this can still be an interesting, difficult... Because, I mean, look at PGA West. It's got sinewy fairways and angles seven days a week. The pros played it uh, the first year it was open as a Bob Hope, as a course during the Bob Hope tournament, and then they wrote a, a uh, 
they all put a petition. They never wanted to play it again, and they've never <laughs> played it again. Although I think they played it this past year. Yeah, they went back. Part of the Bob Hope. Well, now now they play it and they shoot 63s because yeah. they figured it out. See, that's the interesting thing. The, the PGA West of the world, just forget the deep bunkers and the railroad ties and all that external stuff. You have to think when you play, and, and that's what those holes at Shinnecock did. They, they did what Ben Hogan used to say. Uh, on the best golf holes, you have to think one shot ahead. And the trouble is, all golfers have played 90% of their rounds of golf on courses that don't require that thought. Mm-hmm. So they, they, can re- they can often reject a course where you actually have to think a little bit and kind of like tack your way from waypoint to waypoint. You know, in the winter I play a lot of golf, and I'll say, look at how this hole is set up. Uh, you should set up on the right side of the tee. You always hit fade. That allow you to end up in the fairway. It would be better if you were on the left hand. And I've had my friends turn to me and say, well, I don't want to think when I play. And I say, yeah, but wait a minute. It's five seconds a shot. Mm-hmm. You shoot 100. It's 500 seconds. You need to think for eight minutes. You can do that. I know you can. Yeah. it's a, it's a, It requires a few like brief seconds of intense thought uh, every couple yeah, of minutes. And, no, and and people reject that, and you see it in the poor average players who are hitting hook every single shot, hitting fade every single shot, and they tee it up in the middle of the tee, and they aim right down the middle. Mm-hmm. It's just um, if they gave it a little more thought, you know, that, that kind of course management, when I sometimes think when someone takes a lesson, you know, they should do a half an hour on what are you having a problem with? Well, your grip. Let's work on your grip, and, and, and we'll try to improve that. And then the next half hour, they should sit down and say, uh, look at the golf hole on the computer screen. Wh- where do you want to try to hit it? And, you know, they'll say, well, I'm not sure I want to hit it down the middle. And then the, the pro would say, well, yeah, but look at how that green, it's kind of what we call a fade green. It, 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 it moves to the right from front to back if you if if you hit if you play a fade you can fail positively if it doesn't fade you'll have a longer putt but if it does fade you're closer to the pin and by playing fade because it's a fade green you'll take those nasty bunkers that play a role in making it a fade green you'll take them completely out of play so if, if folks could read holes a little bit better but again i don't I'm not giving them a hard time because the majority around in their life, they haven't had a hole that was set up so it could be read and yeah. played strategically. And also the education. It's its hard to, to learn about that stuff. It, it, it's, um, you know, it, I think it almost takes an awakening, and you hit on it a little bit about not having a hole, but I see so many of my friends, they they when they finally play a great golf course, they that has the width and the angles and the strategy they finally realize that wait golf can be different and there is like this better golf that exists and and um when we make a change on an existing course i i generally find that a good percentage of the players find out something's going on by mistake 
they hit it down the left side by mistake, they pull it, and when they get there, they see the green is completely open to their next shot, and they start to connect the dots. And then they start to look for that more on the next hole and the next hole after that and the next hole after that. And, and, and the way that it manifests itself sometimes is they'll, they'll say, oh, that was fun. And I'll say, what do you mean by fun? I said, do you mean easy? And they said, well, no, how could it be easy? You knucklehead, you put 130 bunkers out here. It's not easy, but if we look at it, we see the route we should go. <clears throat> and a lot of times it happens when um, I play golf with them. I don't hit it very long, but I don't miss many fairways. And I can go down one side or the other, and they say, oh, God, you can't hit it out of your shadow, and but I see how you look at the holes and how you play them. I'm going to try that. So, uh, I, you know, unfortunately, I think most times uh, people might get to a Shinnecock and uh, it goes right over their heads because they're looking at the hay mm-hmm. and the and the distant views and stuff like that. But uh, there's stuff out there. And then, you know, the other thing, Andy, and, and, and you know this, many of the courses in the top 100 don't have a shot value in them. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're just in the top 100. Yeah. Well, I mean, the top 100 rankings are flawed in the sense that it, it's not really about the golf course. It's more about the experience, the aesthetics, and the, yeah, it's, it's the window dressing, really. It's the ambiance, the it's experience, all, the it's, conditioning. It's, 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 it's all that stuff, and really, the, the contest should not be called best new golf courses that's that is the wrong name they should be called the golf course that was lucky enough to be cited on the most ridiculously foolish natural golf terrain ever conceived by the lord above (laughs) or had enough money to make that yeah Um. it's um it's interesting you know they're the only contests that compare a um, a Yugo versus against a Ferrari. Yeah, it's so. But, uh, but you, um, I, I couldn't have said it better. You said it. It's all the externals. It's oh God, they came out with cold towels for us mm-hmm. to to wipe our face and put on our neck at the turn. And and I mean, look at uh, most of the evaluation sheets the Raiders fill out. I think on one shot values is twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Well, what the hell? What else is there? I, well, there's <laughs> like there's no playability. There's no um, there. I think it's. I, I wrote a whole article about why you know people shouldn't even pay attention to Golf Digest top one hundred lists, and it it just you know the the rankings would be fine if if it was called the top 100 golf experiences but they right. call it the 100 greatest golf courses right. and it's it's so i it, it's it's misconstrued i played a lot of these a lot of courses that are ranked above other courses that i know are a lot better and and but then when you read the criteria and you and you start to look and understand the criteria 
you understand why certain courses are ranked in certain spots and it's because oh they they have a a giant maintenance budget or they have or this happened in history there Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing um i had a chance once to speak to a group of raiders and uh and uh so i gave my history of um golf course design and uh Two funny things happened afterwards. One was a guy got up and said, you kept using this. This was a raider. You kept using this term, and I've never heard it before. What's a redan? (laughs) And then the coordinator of this, of the panelists, said to me afterwards, he said, wow, that was awesome. You should write a book. And I have to give the panel, some of the guys credit and gals because afterwards at the cocktail hour they said, could you give us a copy of your PowerPoint? And I said, you know, I really, um, as much as I wanted them to know something about design so that they, for what they did, uh, it was just fascinating that those were the comments. And so the next day I attended a seminar where uh, one of the, they had various raters get up and say, well, how do you actually do your ratings? And this guy got up and said, uh, I'm a three handicap. And when I rate a course, I bring my son. He's a plus two. And he brings his wife. She's an eight. So that way we get three distinctly different calibers of golfers evaluating the course. <laughs> kind of the same bucket. You you can't you you can't make you can't make that stuff up. Yeah, it's pretty uh, awesome. Um, so I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about more about Rainer and McDonald. Um, I'm a huge Rainer fan, and we've got a lot of Rainer fans that listen, and um, would love to hear a little bit uh, about what your favorite template hole is of all the template holes. Uh, I- Andy, I, I, I don't think I can pick one. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't. You mean uh, uh, the, the this hole on this specific course? No, just in general of like you know what what overarching strategic you know uh, strategic hole uh, like template hole like from a strategy standpoint or just the way it sets up the way it makes you think is your favorite. Wow, it, that's really, really hard. You know, I I would say the um, the the Redan the the Redan at the National, but I just go out of my mind about the Alps at the National. Mm-hmm. I um, I'm really hard pressed. Uh, I I think what I really love, Andy, is I love to see the different versions of the templates. And I think this is really important, and this is something that's often missed, is that it's, it's the template holes are not, like every redan is not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, maybe more obvious to some people, every Beeritz is not the same. You know, every Beeritz, Beeritz is not the full three-level Beeritz. But I think what they did so great was they had their template holes, and they adapted 
and adopted them to various pieces of land. Their goal was not to make each version of the template exactly the same as every other version. For example, if you play the 17th hole at, uh, uh, at Ponte Vedra at the Players Club, mm-hmm. it's got a certain look to it, so on and so forth. Well, then you play the 17th hole at PGA West, it's got almost the exact same look to it, mm-hmm. where each redan is different, each punch bowl is different. You know, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm driving up the driveway, I wonder if they have a punch bowl, and I wonder if it's a natural punch bowl where the land was like that, like many of them are, or is it more a contrived or constructed punch bowl, which some of them are. So I think uh, I'm not really answering your question. No, no. But I, what my favorite thing about the templates is, is to see how they are different from course to course. I, I think that that is um, really, really fascinating. Look, uh, uh, a great one is Alps. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at Alps at the National. There's a huge bunker where you bite off as much as you dare. And then your second shot is blind up to the top of that hill. Well, that bears no relationship uh, other than strategically, which is, of course, mildly important to nuts like you and me, uh, to the Alps at Shore Acres. Mm-hmm. Or Fox Chapel, where there is that bite-off bunker on one side or the other, but at both of those courses, there are mounds, where if you bite off a lot of the bunker, you have a view of the green. If you bail out, there are mounds in the front and side of the green, that block the view of the green. So there are there are two completely different versions of the template. Yeah, and um, it's like each fish- one of them is very cool. It's it's like Fisher's. If you hit it, if you take on the water down the right side, you get a small sliver of a view of the green. Yeah, um, it it's um, very very uh, cool. So. I think that's one thing. And, you know, it, it, as you said, it's a real externals thing. When, when somebody writes an article, uh, and God bless them, the ninth at Yale is always pictured as one of the templates. Yeah. Or some other really, really famous and maybe more outlandish version of a template is what is pictured. But again, there are, there are Alps. I remember one time we were talking about an Alps, and the guy said, you explained to me what the Alps is. And he said to me afterwards, a friend of mine, you have no idea what an Alps is. And I says, what do you mean? He says, well, what you described bears no relationship to the Alps at the National. <laughs> and I said, well, forgive me, but the Alps at the National has no match in other Alps by Rayner and McDonald. I said, I think what you're missing is the lay of the land can be, it's not the lay of the land that really made it. It was how they set it up strategically. So for me, I think that is the coolest thing about Rayner and McDonald is the presentation of um, each template is different 
from course to course, and that's what makes it so much fun when you're driving up the driveway. Mm-hmm. You're saying, well, I wonder if it's going to be like the National, where I, I can actually kick a low shot off that right front corner of the Redan and have it go kind of diagonally to that tucked left pin. Well, not all of them work that great in that regard. The, the uh, Redan at Fishers doesn't work uh, quite like that. The Redan at Yeaman's Hall um, it, it isn't, isn't quite like that. But that's what makes them interesting, because it's just not one golf course repeated 75 times. Mm-hmm. Each, one, each one has its own interest. I think it, that is the nature of their brilliance. And the other thing was, it doesn't appear that what they were doing struck them as outlandish. They just thought they were building a good golf course. Whereas today, if I do a lot of punch bowl greens, people say, well, what the hell is that? Or a Redan, I I couldn't hold my ball on the green. Why does it pitch away from the shot? See, today it appears outlandish. They They just were going about their business building cool golf courses yeah. that were yeah. you know that were based on when you go back and you read you know I'm I'm just thrilled if people are able to recognize a template if they would ever go back and read Scotland's gift and and see how McDonald came up to selecting the templates it's just it couldn't be more fascinating you know one of my uh my uh favorite things about the template holes is is exactly what you said is like I, I remember this winter I played Mountain Lake and and driving in you see the the Buritz and you're like oh wow and 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 you I think that's one of the things people why people love watching the Masters year in year out is that they know what's coming it's and, familiar to them no and, doubt and an understanding of templates and and a love like you know when you play a Rainer course you're you're waiting to see what's around the next corner and you know you. You see these different versions of it, like like Mountain Lakes Road Hole is completely different than, say, Shore Acres Road Hole or Nationals Road Hole, um, and it's it it is unique, and I think that's where it's so misunderstood is people think that it's just you know a replica course, but it's it's not a replica course in in any way. No, it's it that's a real good connection, Andy. Um, that that's what they think it is. Um, and it, it's uh, it, it, it unquestioned. Uh, it, it isn't that. But you know, on the other hand, you could go to a contemporary course where an architect copies a hole, and it's exactly like the other version. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it hasn't been an adaptation of it. And I, you know, uh, I read an article once where one of the more famous contemporary architects said, well, why would I want to repeat themes on a golf hole when there are so many new themes uh, still to be uh, designed or mm-hmm. or practiced? And, you know, it, it was just uh, such a ludicrous thing to say, especially if you investigated the body of work that, you know, he's talking about yeah it's hard to charge two million it's hard to charge a million or two million on a course when you tell the client i'm going to abase this on the work of rayner and mcdonald Mm -hmm. it's 
So, so I, uh, I, we got a lot of questions from uh, readers and followers I, I put out that you were coming on. And uh, so I wanted to get to a few of those, if, uh, if sure. you don't mind. So here's a question. So uh, everyone seems to, and this is from Michael Wolf. everyone seems to now agree getting back to the GCA principles of 1900 to 1930s is best for golf. And restorations are where the work is now. He wants to know what about the hundreds of golf courses, hundreds and thousands of golf courses built in the 80s and 90s, and what do you do with all of them? Like, can can these residential um, courses that were were built with narrow fairways be retrofitted in any way? Or I I think they can, uh, and and Andy, you know. We, we all have to be, those of us who are um, betrothed to the 1900s to 1930s, we, we have to admit not everyone that was built then was great. You know, there were, there were a lot of 18 stakes on a Sunday afternoon that were not uh, tremendous golf courses. You know, we think of a place like Seminole that, to me, has the, the greatest alternating shot shapes of any Ross course I've ever seen. Spectacularly well done. I think the greatest angles of any Ross course I've ever seen. But, you know, Donald and uh, A.W. and uh, all the rest of the gang, they didn't do all the courses built. But um, I think you you can still uh, do a good job, even without a 300-foot wide corridor, you can still, uh, well, let me say, I've worked on those courses. I haven't seen one where you can't get some twist and turn in the fairways, where you can't get the fairway bunkers to more significantly impact the twist and turn, where you can't think about angles on the greens. Um, in all honesty, I, I think the narrowness of the car is, I don't like it but I think it's a little bit too comfortable an excuse to use mm-hmm. for why a course couldn't be made more interesting to play and more fun to play. So, so how would you go about, you know, kind of w- working with narrow corridors now that you're kind of awakening? Say somebody said, hey, we want to bring you back to one of your courses in the early days where you built with narrow fairways. Well, um, I, w- I am... Um, I would still, if if I went back to one of my courses where my fairways are 30 yards wide, mm-hmm. um, I would still put bunkers in that there's always room in the original tree planting to uh, let a bunker stick into the fairway, say, on the hook side, and let it swing out more and narrow the amount of rough until you get to the trees so mm-hmm. you get that sinewy-type fairway. Yeah. I, I, I guess... I guess um, that's one of the first things I think about. I was just doing it the other day on Google Earth where someone had called me and I looked at their golf course and I was already trying to think of how I could get more movement. Now, Andy, I don't mean movement like contour mowing mm-hmm. where the fairway is 35 yards wide for the shortest hitter, uh, 20 yards wide for the guy who hits a 220, and then 10 yards wide. That, that thing that from the 80s and the early 90s. I mean a fairly consistent with the fairway that just twists and turns on its way to the green. So 
I, I think you can do it in narrow corridors and narrow fairways. Um, and because usually when I did narrow fairways, I had lo- I had a good amount of rough, mm-hmm. and I would see some of that rough being converted to fairway. Yeah, widening out. I think that's a, a good strategy is getting turning a lot of the rough into fairway and getting a little bit wider. um, I said that I would not mention names of golf courses that I work on because it's, it's, um, it's kind of the club's business. And and I know that's what everybody likes to do when I worked at so-and-so and and I worked in such and such, but we worked at a 1960s designed golf course on Long Island last year. And I would say one of the main things we did was turn the angle of the bunkers and make the fairways bigger. Mm-hmm. And there was room to do the twist and turn. And and I would say that uh, they range between pleasantly surprised to completely stunned how they have to think on their golf course now. It was just the typical 60s golf course. Dead straight fairway edges and um, bunkers that were uh, parallel to the center line. Mm-hmm. And never impacted play. So um, I think you can do it even in narrow corridors. Obviously, you can't do it as well, but you can still get that feel uh, of of the flow. Yeah, yeah, that it, it makes sense. It's um, so David Grady wants to know how kind of uh, renovation and restoration has evolved over the past twenty years. Well, um, for, for me, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to speak for everyone. You know, um, I, I've never been the mouthpiece for the, the craft, but um, I would say at the very least, there appears to be uh, more appreciation for, uh, as a first step, trying to determine what that golf course was like originally and then uh, seeing uh, what of that you could uh, emphasize uh, in your work and uh, what to me if this is an older course what vintage of character what vintage characteristics you could put into the course and put them in in a manner that people think that they were always there if they weren't there originally. Mm. So um, I, I, I think there's a little bit more appreciation for uh, what might have been there originally. Today, I think there's a little bit more appreciation for what was there originally and what may have been taken out. But, you know, you still hear about this course or that course, uh, fill in the blank here, designed by a golden age architect that uh, the club is not entirely appreciative of that and uh, who they hire is not totally appreciative of that and they get a course in the fill in the architect's name uh, mode. Mm -hmm. So I think um, folks like you and me, Andy, who like that stuff think that it's everywhere and it's, it's far from everywhere yet. Um, so what, what's a course that you'd like to see host a major championship that hasn't or isn't hosting major championships? Um, oh boy, I, 
I, Andy, I I don't know off the top of my head. You know, I'm <laughs> that's okay. I'm, I'm I'm trying to kind of factor in. Um, I'm 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 kind of trying to factor in uh, the way they set up these uh, major championships. Um, you know, I find it interesting that. Uh, you know the major golf associations pick some of these out of the box sites that kind of don't fit into the Wingfoot, Oakmont, Southern Hills, Pebble Beach. You know what I mean? Yeah. The the typical rota, and and they pick them five years before they um, play them, and then they spend three or five million dollars getting the course ready for the event. It, it there's a a degree of standardization that I get uh, discomforted by. Um, I'm not doing very uh, good uh, naming uh, courses that I think should be, uh, ma- you know, major sites. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's okay. It's a, it's a question I always I always think about. It's a, it, yeah. But it, it, one of the big problems is the ball. You know, it goes just too far for a lot of these courses, and then you also combine the infrastructure needed. Um, you know, it's really the it's the great shame of the game that it's broken into two armed camps. There's a camp that loves the game of golf, and unfortunately, that's the small camp now. And there's a camp that loves the business of golf, and the camp in the business of golf. Um, has so directly or indirectly intimidated the ruling bodies of golf uh, that they won't take the step that is absolutely essential, and that is to slow down the ball. It's really a shame. Mm-hmm. It's it's the game's unfinest moment. Yeah. Um, that that this continues. I was I was out at Skokie yesterday. I was walking with a guy, and he he was like man, how great would it be to see a major championship at this place? And it's like, it would be great. The greens are unbelievable, but you can't because the ball just goes too far. I think that's part of my answer, of my inability to answer the question. There are dozens and dozens of courses like Skokie that I would love to see. Um, uh, If we could just turn the clock back, uh, to the late 60s, and the, and the players had to hit into a green what Nicholas and players like that were hitting into a green. Mm-hmm. That that would be my dream to see that happen. But, you know, that will never happen, and so that makes it hard for me to answer which one would you like to see a major event at because I'd like to see a major event at hundreds of them, but not with today's equipment. Yeah, yeah, I, I, agree. I believe that I believe that working the ball is part of the game, and I'm going to go to my grave thinking it should be part of the game. And like on the tour now, it's not; it's just power golf. But I think a guy standing up on a tee, reading the hole, and saying, "I want to cut this one," or standing up on the tee and I want to turn this the other way, and 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 here's an angle of a green I can fail positively by hitting a fade because. If I fail to hit a fade and hit it straight, I'm putting. It's a longer putt, but if I am uh, successful hitting a fade, I'm putting for birdie. Mm-hmm. So uh, the equipment thing is just uh, just overwhelming. I mean, I have clients say to me, why are you worried about the angles and, and, and this stuff? 
these these young kids and our good players, they never even think about that. And I say, well, I, I think we still should think about it and we should try to, um, you know, make it a part of their game uh, as much as it's a part of um, uh, players who don't hit it as far. And I think the restoration thing is maybe uh, refining itself a little uh, to um, either uh, moving some bunkers down a fairway so that the original intent of the design is recaptured or maybe adding a few more bunkers in the correct style so the original intent the intent of the original design is captured because just if if you think of it Andy just taking a plan or having an old aerial and putting the bunkers back the fairway bunkers back exactly where they are um isn't yeah I've it, had people I've had people say to me are you really restoring the intent of the original design? And I have to, I have to admit, they make a good point. Yeah, it's. I agree with that because, like, the intent, so, intent's been lost with a lot of the technology. So you'd need to move bunkers into different yeah. places in order to regain that intent. And and see, that's why I think that one of the more important rules about design is you sit down and breathe deeply and think a little bit about it. Sometimes it's right to put original bunkers back exactly where they were, but to to just stick on that goal probably doesn't restore the original intent of play. Yeah. Just like going to an old course and saying, ah, this place is old, I'm just going to do the modern thing here, that probably is too quick of a knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the players who need to think for that five seconds we determined standing on a tee, um, the guys with the pencils in their hands need to think for, for a few minutes, where does some of the original stuff work in terms of bunker placement? And, and, and look, if I, if I could do a course a third, an eighth, a tenth as good as any of the golden ages, I'd be very proud of myself. But I don't think it's wrong to say uh, that original set of bunkers just doesn't work for the modern game. Mm-hmm. Is there a na- and, and then the job becomes, how can I find a natural spot? Because a lot of times they were placing their bunkers in nice natural spots for bunkers, where there were upslopes where they could just cut a hole in the ground and it became a good bunker. It didn't look artificial. It looked like it set into the landscape. Is is there a spot where I can recreate that same feel by um, putting it into an upslope where the grade works, or can I build an upslope that when it's grassed, people will think it was always there? Yeah, I I would uh I that nat, nothing looks better than natural bunkers. And so we do this uh My my test my test for my guy on the bulldozer is I just say to him and they laugh now they're used to it, but I say um is that a comfortable bunker? <laughs> and 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 I say what do you mean? I said, "Well, does that and you know, you go to these courses where bunkers have been added further down holes, or you go, to, you go to courses built in the 60s, what I call the age of golf course engineering rather than golf course architecture, but it continues today. There are people who still follow uh, that inspiration, 
of the 60s. They may disguise it by ripping the edges of their bunkers, but they're, they're still basically 60s golf courses. You know, fade bunkers are all the exact same distance from the tee. Hook bunkers are all the exact same uh, distance from the tee. And, and you'll see some of these bunkers where they're built on a reverse slope, but that reverse slope just happened to be the right distance from the tee. And, that, you know, there's a berm that's 12 feet high behind the bunker holding it up. Hopefully, if you're working in a restorative manner, you can get a comfortable bunker, or, or I'll say to the guys, does that bunker look like it's supposed to be there? Um, I think that's the other thing. It's, it's not only... Um, um, put in the bunker in the same spot that the Golden Ager had it on the plan or putting it in a spot that has the same impact on the whole as what the Golden Ager uh, was thinking. It's, uh, can you detail it so it looks like it's been there for a long time and wasn't built um, three weeks ago last Tuesday? Yeah, that's... It's uh, naturalness. So we have this uh, segment that we wrap up these podcasts with called Overrated, Underrated. And I'll, we'll give you a couple of topics and you just say if you think they're overrated or underrated and you can give like a quick, short kind of uh, explanation as to your answer. Andy, you haven't been listening if you think I can give a quick and short explanation, but I'm going to try my best. <laughs> yeah. It's a, so, Herbert Strong, the architect. Oh, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm going to go uh, in between overrated and underrated. You're going properly? Yeah, I, 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 would, I would just say he's an in-between. You know, um, uh, that's what I think. Okay. Um, grass bunkers. Uh, I think they're a little overrated. Um, elev- I have a lot. I have clubs. I have clubs that want to convert sand bunkers into grass bunkers, and um, um, it, in most of the situations where they want to do that, it's not an even trade uh, visually mm-hmm. or strategically or helping players recognize the angles and so forth. You know, there's been a lot of, I'm going to, is just one more paragraph. There's a lot of talk about bunkers today, maintenance costs and all that kind of stuff, but they're, they're a part of golf. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm not sure that everyone can be replaced by either a tree or a grass bunker. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I, I do like grass bunkers. I think that are they're really tough for the good player and they're a little bit more playable than regular bunkers for the for the average and beginner. Yeah, I, I think it it's just it they their positioning and maybe they're part of a bunker group mm-hmm. or something like that is um kind of an important thing to consider. Yeah. Um so how about the blind tee shot? It's dramatically underrated. It it makes me insane how the degree to which they're rejected and considered a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing for the blind shot to a green. 
it makes me crazy that they are so rejected and disliked. It's it's a shot in golf. Yeah. I got to tell you, Andy, when I review uh, when I read a review of a course that starts out with this is a great course, everything is right out in front of you. I rarely finish the review, and I never have any interest in seeing that course. <laughs> you like to have a little bit of the thrill, and um, it, it, there's that feel of a blind shot or rolling up to like a punch bowl green that's blind on an Alps hole and wondering where your ball is that that's, can't be replaced. No, tell me that when you're walking and you hit a shot to a blind green that's a punch bowl, you don't throw the iron back in the bag and then double time it up the hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you or if you're forced to, you get in the cart and you don't floor it to get around the corner. Um, two or three years ago, or four years ago, I went to southern Scotland and I played a course called Nairn that has mm-hmm. about 20 blind shots. It is one of my five favorite golf courses in the world. It was unbelievably great. And and I would think that most people would say, and it's only because I love blind shots, uh, that 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 uh, that's that that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to love it. If it's a blind shot to a green, more often than not, there's some degree of punch bowl character to one side or or all of the green. And so, a hack like me, I can miss the green, and it ends up 12 feet from the pin. It, it's see. The, that's one thing that we've forgotten. Golf is supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think blind shots are wicked fun. It's, uh, yeah, I, I like blind shots. I'm, I'm a fan. Um, and I can't believe the percentage of better drives. I hit on a blind shot because I have to concentrate. You, you're making yourself concentrate so much more on somehow picking a line. and And I would say... More often than not, I hit one of my better drives of the day because it's made me focus. There's nothing wrong with something that makes you hit one of your better drives of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, what about ocean and water views? I, I think they could not be more spectacularly overrated. <laughs> I, I agree. I think they, oh, they, take, they take away from the architecture. They're awesome when combined with great architecture, but they make average holes very uh, perceived great. Right before I take my last breath, somebody's going to hand me a piece of paper, and it's a rating of Pebble Beach that got, after the course got moved 50 miles inland. <laughs> it wouldn't be as good, huh? Well, I, I would think it might be different. Yeah. But I, but I feel that way about, um, you know, um, courses set at the base of mountains, uh, set in sand dunes and stuff like that. Um, I, and I know they can't do it. I know they can't. I know it's too hard to do. And I'm not even being a wise guy. But if the Raiders just looked at the tops of the tees, the tops of the fairways, the tops of the greens, and the angles and the variety that they introduced into the round of golf, I'd like to see the ratings uh in those circumstances i'm curious i i played fishers island and in chicago golf in in a week span for the first time on each of them 
How would you compare the two of those? Um, I, I'm, I, I don't like to directly compare. Yeah. Um, and if, if, How, well, let's if say you this. told me you were going to, if you, if you told me that, um, you were, um, how, how you, would you, you want to play tenor. golf at me at, at my, at my selection out of those two? Uh huh. I would tell you to pick me up at O'Hare. Yeah. That's, I, I feel the same. So I think like, I always look at these courses and if I have to compare is like dividing, you know, dividing 10 rounds, how would I would divide 10 rounds? And I, I've thought about that one more than almost anyone. And I think I'd go six or six, four or seven, three Chicago golf. I would just say, pick me up at O'Hare, Andy. <laughs> it, it, that place is the it, one of the most architecturally sound golf courses I've ever seen. Probably ever. It probably is the most. It, and 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 when nuts like you and I say things like that, we should say, and it's on a nondescript site. Mm-hmm. It's, is that correct? Yeah, I think it. I think it's. I think the site that it's on is underrated. I think people say it's a bad site, but it's a pretty good site. But, you know, relative to these other um, Rel- World Fair sites, Andy. Yeah. Relative to Fisher's Ocean. Island, yeah. that, that has yeah. water views on every hole, yes. Yes, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's another thing that I find interesting is uh, someone will go to a course, well, it's not much of a course, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the, the site, it's just flat. Um, I think St. Andrews is a fairly strategic golf course. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really special about that site. I think the site is too often an easy excuse. On flat land, I, I, I honestly can't figure out why Florida doesn't have 500 great golf courses. It, well, I think the, the thing I notice is you can really tell the skill of an architect with how they – what they do with flat land, like no, um, no doubt you you, um, I I won't try to say it better. You you just said it great, and I think too often things like well the developer wanted this, well the developer wanted a hard penal golf course, well the land was flat. I just think sometimes they're they're uh, excuses that are too convenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you, on a flat piece of land, these holes I'm talking about are Shinnecock, they're on relatively flat piece, a flat piece of land. Mm-hmm. And they're great golf courses because they have the angles and the strategy. And in Florida, you could do any degree of angles, any amount of sinewy fairway. The green angles could be anything. And basically, what do you see? Oh, there's a fade bunker at a certain distance. There's a hook bunker at a certain distance. And then at the green... There's a green or a bunker at three o'clock, nine o'clock, and twelve o'clock. Well, they're y- just it, they're just they're golf course engineering and not golf course design. They, it goes to your whole adage of when it was developed. It was developed; those courses were developed from 1950, primarily 1950 through 1995. Yeah, it was the age of golf course engineering. Yep, not architecture. So no, you 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 could never, you could never say that it was it was. Um, let's um, slap it in quick and get to the next victim. Yep. 
So, Brian, I, I really appreciate the time, and uh, that was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. I feel like we only touched on about 10% of the topics I wanted to get to. Yeah, my, my answers that go on and on forever will <laughs> limit the amount of questions. So I'll just tell you one thing. I'll be looking at that phone call telling me when I should get to O'Hare to play the course I cho- chose over the one that's on the island. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be trying to figure out when I can get out there again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, big guy. Hey, good talking to you. Thank yeah. you.